Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Like Luke said, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn with me to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. As many of you know, uh, Christ Church has been working their way through the book of of Philippians on Sunday mornings. And it's a joy-filled letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was located in a city called Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony which was located in modern-day Greece. And up to this point in the letter, Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to be unified. He's been encouraging the Philippians to live a life characterized by humility and challenging them to be servants and followers of Christ in their everyday lives. Um, And up to this point, Paul has been using some really beautiful pictures of what the Christian life looks like. Beautiful illustrations for what it means to follow Jesus in everyday life. And while they've been beautiful ideas of the Christian life, these teachings up to this point have remained at a fairly abstract level. Okay? They've been fairly abstract up to this point. Paul has said things like, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said things like, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. In just a few verses before the ones that we'll read, he said, shine in light as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And to be sure, these are beautiful exhortations, but they can also be difficult to really grasp, if we're honest, to understand what these exhortations really look like in real life. I wonder if you've ever felt this in the Christian life, if you've ever felt like, okay, Um, This all sounds great, but what does it look like on a practical level? Uh, Shining as lights in the world, that sounds amazing. Um, But what would it look like to actually live that way in my life? In many ways, that's the question that Paul is answering for us in this passage. He's encouraging, he's been encouraging the Philippians with beautiful commands and ideas up to this point. And now he turns and shows us real life examples real people who practically implement some of these beautiful abstract principles. Okay, you follow along as we get a chance to see the good life exemplified by two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'll begin reading in Philippians chapter 2 verse 19. This is the good life exemplified. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may too be cheered of news by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, this is the good life exemplified. Let me pray for us before we look at it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word and for the way that it points us to you, for the way that it shows us Jesus, our only hope in life and in death. We pray this morning that we would see him 
and that by seeing him and believing in him, we would be set free to live a life worthy of the calling you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been to any of the local big box stores recently, like Target or Walmart or Costco, then you've likely noticed that people are getting geared up for the holiday season. Um, First, you've got Halloween uh, in a few days, followed by Thanksgiving, which is my personal favorite uh, holiday this time of year, followed by the big one, Christmas. Um, And if you've stepped foot into one of these stores over the past few weeks, you'll notice that Christmas is on the forefront of everyone's mind already. Um, In fact, just the other day, I was on Facebook, and one of my friends has already put up their Christmas tree. Um, That is pretty crazy. Uh, And I'm sure that we've all likely commented on the fact that Christmas gets earlier and earlier every year. And during the next few months, our culture's propensity for stuff, propensity for stuff, and our inclination to selfishness, it's going to be on full display, okay? You You could make the argument that this selfishness is at its most high, it's at the high watermark on what's become known as Black Friday, Um, The day after Thanksgiving uh, when massive sales take place. Uh, It's the start of the Christmas shopping season and also the time of year where some of the worst characteristics of humanity surface. Okay, If you don't believe me, just take a listen to some stories from the perspective of store employees from Black Friday's past. Okay, One Walmart employee shares this. Back in my college days when I worked at Walmart, we had a fight break out over a bike. Fists were thrown and there was some blood. Eventually, one guy got a hold of the bike and managed to get away from the crowd. He rode the bike out of the store to flee his pursuers without paying. A Sam's Club employee uh, uh, remembers another Black Friday this way. When I worked at Sam's Club during the madness one Black Friday morning, we caught a woman stuffing the inside of her trousers with frozen lobster tail. She would unpackage them and throw the trash in a stack of tires that were on display. A little strange. Finally, a Target employee tells the following Black Friday story. Another thing that happened that Black Friday was when we opened up the display for the board games. This old lady, I'm talking maybe in her 80s, had two empty carts. And when we opened it, she grabbed as many as she could fit into the two baskets. Nothing really wrong with this, he says until she started ripping games from some little kids and throwing them in her cart. You see the worst of people on Black Friday. Okay, some of these stories are funny, pretty outlandish. And in a real sense, they they reveal something about human nature. They give a glimpse into the human heart. Because generally speaking, people have a deep desire to be self-seeking. If you were to take all the restraints away from our lives, off of our hearts, you and I would have to come to the conclusion that we've got a desire to be self-seeking, a default setting to be selfish. People look out for themselves. And this propensity to self-centeredness is just highlighted under the pressure of Black Friday. When we fight against the idea of scarcity, that there won't be enough for me. When we convince ourselves that there's not going to be enough for me, it's then that we see our inclination to look out for ourselves no matter what it does to other people. But it doesn't have to be something as big as Black Friday to reveal that we are bent on the inside. Okay, we also experience this inclination to self-centeredness on a daily basis, normally with less intensity than the stories that we just heard. 
And this self-centeredness crops up in our hearts in lots of different ways. It crops up when we don't get our way. When our spouse leaves a chore undone that we thought she should have done or he should have done. When our kids take up time we had planned for ourselves. When we're asked to volunteer at a service project on a Saturday when the big game's on. When we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve at work. And it doesn't have to be Black Friday. The seeds of self-centeredness live in every one of our hearts. This self-centeredness also shows up in other areas too. If you step back and think about it, it plays out in our general level of discontent. We see it in our lives when we believe that we deserve more. Deserve more money or a better house or a more prestigious job or more appreciation from our family. What is so wrong with this mentality? Why is our self-centeredness such a big deal? Well, Augustine once said, there can only be two basic loves. Two basic loves. The love of God unto forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness of God. Okay, in other words, our struggle with self-centeredness and selfishness and self-interest has the potential to kill us spiritually. Our self-centeredness has the potential to kill any possibility of genuine community with God and with one another. It'll keep you from gratitude and joy. It'll sabotage your relationship with God. It'll keep you internally focused. And as we're self-absorbed, our souls will stay small and malformed. Self-centeredness is really the anti-Christian state of mind. And if we're honest, it's where you and I often find ourselves. And it's the problem with self-centeredness that Paul is primarily addressing in our passage this morning. And he does this by introducing us to two people who demonstrate what others-centeredness actually looks like. Two people that are more concerned for the well-being of others than they are for themselves. And by highlighting these two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, we get tangible examples of more abstract ideas that Paul has been trying to communicate to this church. Okay, and these tangible examples are really important for the Philippians because they needed spiritual role models that they personally knew that demonstrated what it meant to follow Jesus. Just like you and I need personal role models that we know that we can actually touch, demonstrating for us what it looks like to follow Jesus. We don't need another book. We don't need another conference with speakers that we don't know personally. We need people in our lives that demonstrate what this looks like. They needed real-life pictures, and so do we. There's a great scene in the movie Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams, who plays a therapist is sitting with Matt Damon, and he's playing a genius with some real deep relational problems in the movie, and they're on a park bench, and they just met. And Matt Damon's character is super book smart in the movie. If you've seen it, you know this. He knows a a lot of technical, abstract material. But the problem is the abstract isn't enough because his life is disintegrating uh, right out from under him. And in this scene, Robin Williams is sitting next to him, and this is what he says to Matt Damon, highlighting the difference between abstract knowledge and real-life experience. He says this, If I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. 
Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favorites. You may have even been involved with women a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. And I'd ask you about war, and you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have that love for her, to be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared love anybody that much. Okay. In this passage in Philippians chapter 2... Paul is trying to show the Philippians that they can do more than just know about the Christian life. They can actually live it. They can actually practice it. In fact, that's what they're being called to do. And by giving us two real-life examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul is showing us two people who have really lived out the Christian principles that he's been teaching. And these men were known by the Philippians. These men had had the credibility to speak into this church's life. And these men exemplified the good life that Paul is trying to persuade the Philippians to embrace. First, we see Timothy. Notice that Paul doesn't lead with the fact that Timothy is a great teacher. He doesn't lead with the fact that Timothy knows a ton of theology. He doesn't lead with the fact that Timothy is even a devout or a holy man. He could have begun with Timothy's gifts and his skill. He could have said, here's an amazing leader. But he doesn't do that. Look at how he highlights Timothy in verses 20 and 21. He says this, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Philippians that here is a man who's genuinely concerned for your interests, not his own. That's his resume. Second, we see Paul highlight Epaphroditus. He was a man, you might know from earlier Sundays, that was sent by the Philippians to Paul in order to deliver a gift to Paul and to minister to Paul's needs. He was a representative of the Philippian congregation. And he was a man who was sacrificing his comfort. He was sacrificing his goals and his dreams and his very way of life to serve Paul in the ministry of the gospel. Epaphroditus was a caretaker. He's compassionate and self-sacrificing. He's focused on others. And here's the thing. We know from his name that he's likely a recent convert. Okay, A man who was named after the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Raised in a pagan family, likely, in the city of Philippi. Maybe even one of Paul's first converts in that city. And there's no indication that he held any leadership office in the church. There's no indication that he was special in his gifting or his theological acumen. He was just a common guy, a common man, living in Philippi. 
And listen to how Paul commends this common man in verses 29 and 30. He says this, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Look, it's not theology that demands honor. It's not great teaching. It's not amazing leadership that, that, that should be honored. It's the fact that Epaphroditus was willing to give up his life for others that should elicit our praise and admiration, that should call forth our honor. Here are two men who Paul holds up as role models to the Philippians Paul had just spent a good portion of his letter teaching the Philippians what it means to be unified, to be selfless, to practice humility, and teaching is good. His teaching is good, but we need more than just teaching. We need teaching demonstrated. People who are able to show us what the good life that Paul speaks of actually looks like, and these are people to emulate as they follow Jesus into the good life. Now, Why exactly is self-sacrifice considered the good life? Why is this an attractive way to live? To sacrifice for others. After all, it seems counterintuitive to our culture. It's counterintuitive to our own hearts. Doesn't it sound better to get ahead? To hoard things? To self-promote? To climb the ladder? Wouldn't that lead to the good life? I mean, at least that's the voice that we hear screaming at us almost every day. Self-promote, get ahead, climb the ladder. Tons of voices coming into our hearts and souls persuading us of that. And while it seems like that might be the case, God's kingdom is always counterintuitive and countercultural. See, the way that leads to life will oftentimes feel like death to us initially. This is what Jesus was getting at in Luke 17 when he said, If you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you will lose it. But if you let that life go, you'll get life on God's terms. Okay, living for others, serving others, being self-sacrificial is actually the good life because it thrusts us into authentic community. It leads us to a vital dependence on God. It grows our souls to serve others. It's what you were created to do. A pastor from Arizona named Stephen Cole touches on this counterintuitive nature of the good life when he says this, we need to understand that the Christian life not only begins with death to self, it continues in the same way. Following Jesus means daily repudiating a self-centered life as we seek to love God and others. And I can't help but think that we Americans would be much happier if we stopped seeking self-fulfillment and started finding our fulfillment in Jesus. And he goes on to say this. Someone once asked the famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, his advice for a person suffering from depression. And instead of saying, consult the psychiatrist, he surprised his audience by answering, lock up your house, go across the railway tracks, find someone in need, and do something to help that person. That's the wisest advice I've ever heard a psychiatrist give. Look, not downplaying uh, major depression um, and things that actually need medical attention, but this whole idea of self-denial in service that can actually bring the very happiness that you and I are seeking. But we seek it in the wrong ways. 
And if you grasp and cling to life on your terms, you're going to lose it. But if you'll let that life go, Jesus promises that you'll get life. Okay, if you want life, give yours up. If you want to keep your life and you fight tooth and nail to do it, then you'll wind up experiencing death. You'll have nothing. And it may be tempting to look at the, uh, at the sacrifice. This is something that I thought of as I read this passage this week. To look at the sacrifice that Timothy and Epaphroditus made and to feel sorry for them. I mean, that's tempting. To feel like they've given up the good life. To, to feel like they've sacrificed so much. How poor they must be. All that they've given up. But I imagine that if we could speak with them today, they'd say the opposite. I imagine that they'd say they found life through this service. That they experienced abundance through their poverty. And it, because it's the way that God's kingdom works. A few years ago, I took a group of college students to spend a week in New Orleans for a short-term mission trip. And we had a great week hanging out together. We saw New Orleans. And we worked with a local church in an impoverished neighborhood there in New Orleans. And the church we worked with was really amazing. It was a true interracial church that was committed to the spiritual and physical well-being of its community. And the man we worked with specifically was named Ben. And Ben's a white guy who has a college degree from the University of Georgia... Uh, he also has a master's degree in nonprofit management. And Ben also happens to live with his wife and three little kids in one of the poorest neighborhoods in New Orleans, which also happens to be predominantly black. And so he and his family just stand out like a sore thumb in that neighborhood. And Ben told the story of moving into the neighborhood seven years ago. He and his wife hosted a community group um, to kick off, kind of a kickoff party at their home shortly after moving in. And they invited the neighborhood into their home. And Ben told the story that at that party, a man walked in with a gun because he was mad at another man who was also attending that party. And he ended up shooting and killing that man in his new house. Now here's Ben and his wife, new to this neighborhood, seeking to love their neighbors. And the first thing they experience is literally a murder in their house. And if this were me, I don't know about you, but I would be thinking about how quickly I could get my family out of that situation. Looking for a new neighborhood. But do you know what Ben said about that experience to me and my group of students? He said that it was at that moment that it was confirmed that this is exactly where God wanted him to be. Um, exactly where God wanted them. And now almost a decade later, Ben has started a school for underprivileged kids. He's begun a thrift shop to begin giving jobs to people in the community where they can go and buy affordable clothing. He started helping people launch small businesses in that community. This man with his family, someone who could have had it all, I mean, he could have had the amazing job, the well-funded retirement account. He could have had safety for his kids. Instead, what he had was an encounter with Jesus. He had his life disrupted, and he's moved out in order to spread the life-sharing um, life uh, good news of Christ. And at the end of the week, this is, this is what I'm getting at, Ben mentioned that lots of people look at him and say, wow, look at all that you've done. Look at how much you've sacrificed, all that you could have had. And he quietly said that he always finds that to be a strange comment. Um, because what he's done hasn't been a sacrifice at all, he says. 
He actually looked at our students and said it hasn't been a sacrifice. Instead, he called it the abundant life. He said it's the rich life. It's the good life, a life on purpose for a story that is grand. Look, that's the good life exemplified. And in order to do this, we don't have to move to the poorest neighborhoods of San Antonio. Maybe that's not where God is calling you specifically. Or our self-sacrifice doesn't necessarily even have to be that extravagant. At least not yet. We can take baby steps to get there. You don't have to travel overseas to do it. You don't need to get a theological education to do this. It doesn't have to be that remarkable. In fact, the self-sacrifice that brings life is often going to look more more mundane and ordinary than we normally think. It'll be the small self-sacrifices that you make for your family or for your children or your friends or your co-workers and neighbors. And as you give up the self-absorption and begin to sacrifice for others, you will begin to experience the good life, the abundant life. And don't be surprised if you find yourself wanting more of the good life that that self-sacrifice brings. Maybe sending you out to take more gospel risk and giving more up as the days go by. Okay, last question. What could make us want to live such a self-sacrificial life? Where can we find the motivation to press further into the good life that Paul presents to the Philippians and to us through the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, we'll find some motivation as we see good examples in our lives, people that show us what self-sacrifice looks like, but that's not going to be enough at the end of the day. What we really need to motivate us to live a life of self-sacrifice, what's really going to do that for us is when we come to realize that you and I have been the recipients and the beneficiaries of self-sacrifice. You and I have actually received from another because of his self-sacrifice. You see, the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus can help. But they're really just meant to point to us to someone greater. To the one who exemplified self-sacrifice like no one else. The one who came and sacrificed himself for us so that we might have life. They're meant to point to Jesus, the other-centered man, the ultimate other-centered man, who was so set on bringing us life that he forgot about himself. Look, Jesus would have been well within his rights to come to earth in order to be served. He would have been well within his rights to come in all of his majesty and splendor, who could have demanded to be treated with awe and worship and respect. But what do we see in the Gospels? Instead of coming in that way, what he did is he shelved his rights and came as a servant. He came as a servant. He came as one looking to sacrifice. The other-centered man. And his self-sacrifice was done for you and it was done for me. And it's the only thing that's going to compel and motivate us to a life of self-sacrificial service for others. It's because Jesus took the lowest place for you and for me. He gave up his greatness for you and me. He became a servant and a slave for you and me. And to the degree that we believe that, that's going to be the degree that we've got the power to self-sacrifice for others and to live the good life that Paul promises us and wants us to live. 
Let me pray for us this morning.